This is Leader ReadyCast, a monthly podcast featuring real-world lessons, best practices, and action-oriented insights for the urate moments when you're called upon to lead. Leader ReadyCast is the official podcast of the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative, a joint program of the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health and the Center for Public Leadership at the Harvard John F. Kennedy School of Government. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts. 12, 22, 102. These numbers are the timeline of the Boston Marathon bombing response. There were 12 seconds between the two explosions that ripped through the otherwise idyllic April afternoon. Three people were killed instantly. 264 were wounded or injured. That was tragic. Those 264 people were evacuated and distributed to area trauma centers within 22 minutes. They all survived that day. That was remarkable. And 102 hours later, that Friday evening, the surviving suspect was in custody. That was relieving. Now there's a new number to add to that list, 10. The 10th anniversary of the Boston Marathon bombings was recently commemorated. Around the world, the victims and survivors were remembered, heroism of both official and unofficial respondents honored. The lessons of that incident continue to resonate. You'll find a link in the show notes to a recording of one panel discussion where my MPLI colleagues and I discussed the many enduring lessons from that incident. The use of tourniquets, patient distribution, survivor centricity, collective swarm leadership, and more. In this episode of Leader ReadyCast, however, we're going to look forward rather than backward. I'm joined by two people who are in Boston for this event, though not in the high-profile roles that get the most attention, and who have had the chance to apply what they learned as they've ascended to more senior positions. They're key to our city today. I want to explore how that incident shaped how they think and practice as leaders. I'm joined by Shumaine Benford, Chief of Emergency Management for the City of Boston, and Lee Alexander, Superintendent Training and Career Development for Boston EMS. Back in 2013, Shu was with the Boston Police Department. Lee was with Boston EMS. They've continued to thrive in their careers, and I'm really excited they're joining us today. Let's start with April 15, 2013. Where were you, and how do the bombings affect you? Shu, let's start with you. Sure. Thank you so much for the opportunity to join this morning. Um, you know, as you mentioned, my 10-year anniversary. So, uh, you know, we're all at reliving it, experiencing it, uh, but also thinking about it through a proactive lens about how we move forward. So I'm um, glad to be here, uh, to be part of the conversation, really appreciate and honored uh, to be here, um, you know, and, and participating. Um, on that day, um, I was I was assigned to the police academy and uh, we had a class uh, that was in session. Um, so I was um, I was working that day, um, as is pretty customary. It's uh, all department call-ups, so all resources that are uh, eligible uh, are working on that day. So I was at the police academy on that day, uh, instructing on, on the on fifteenth. That's great. And and Lee, where were you? Good morning, Eric. Uh, good morning, Chief Benford. So I was actually on regularly scheduled days off. Um, I typically, if I were to work the marathon, it would be city side, not the event. So it just happened to fall on my day off, which is school vacation week. So I just spent some time with my son, my nieces and nephews doing regular, you know, April vacation week, fun stuff with the kids um, until I heard the news, you know, the pager was going off 
um, back then we had pagers. So the pagers were going off, the, the, the cell phones were ringing, only to run in the house and find, you know, to see across all the news stations, the, the horrible, um, I'll say bloodshed um, across the screen was very, um, it's still unnerving, but it, it was just speechless, I guess, were the words. So, so what did you do next? I mean, again, I think it's, it's a misconception of people that, you know, the only ones who were affected by an incident were those right at the scene, but obviously you both were, you know, uh, Lee, you were off, but then had a, your pagers going off and Shu, you were working, but not at the marathon site, but uh, out at the academy. So Lee, so what, what actions did you take? Where, where did you start to do? Uh, well, immediately, you know, all my family, I was, you know, like I said, babysitting nieces and nephews. So I started getting phone calls. Do you need me to come get this one, that one? I said, well, let me call dispatch operations and see what the plan is. So I called. They said, you know, everybody for right now, just stand down if you're needed. And we don't have um, a, a recall clause in our contract, so you can't be ordered in. But okay. typically, if there's an event, we're all more than willing to come in. So, you know, after I started calling family, I immediately went to get a uniform ready. Um, and I just kept my phone with me. So um, at that time, I wasn't needed for the day. So there was some relief, but also just that that gut instinct of I, I need to help my colleagues. I need to be, I need, how can I help? But it, I wasn't needed at that day and at that time. So. Great. And Shu, how about for you? Yeah, we knew we knew instantaneously and, and very early on that we were going to be mobilized. We didn't know what that was going to look like. And, you know, one of the challenges that we face in public safety and, and in particular on the police side is that self-deployment syndrome. Um, we always, you know, to be able to manage resources, it's always a challenge. So we wanted to resist that urge uh, because, again, as Superintendent Alexander mentioned it was surreal. So um, we started to mobilize um, internally. We knew that the uh, recruit class was going to be um, a field force that was going to be deployed. We didn't know what uh, what the assignment was going to be in the moment. Uh, we immediately started getting uniforms together. And shortly thereafter, uh, the calls from uh, operations started to come in. Um, first, they were uh, asking for, obviously, all available units that were available. And folks started to move in that direction. And then for me at the time, I was a detective. One of the things that they asked for in order was all detectives uh, were going to be uh, mobilized and ordered uh, to report down to the finish line. So there you both begin to get involved in different ways, but now I want to, so again, I think it's important to realize that not everyone who's, who learns from an incident, who's affected by an incident is the, are the people at ground zero, but people who are out throughout the system are affected. And that's part of what we want to explore. So as you look forward uh, to your career evolution after that, how you've thought about leading, how you've thought about public safety and these, these kinds of events, um, how is your thinking evolved over these subsequent years based on what happened that day. Lee, let's start with you. So we were always taught, you know, be prepared, but there was, there was definitely a sense of hypervigilance in the air. Like everybody just had, you know, enough uniforms to stay, if they had to stay for 16 hours, um, if they had to sleep at stations for the next day, it was like everyone was on pins and needles waiting for the next whatever was going to happen. So I would say there was just a, such a heaviness of hypervigilance. 
And in the years since then, has that, has that remained? Or how is, again, do you think differently about scenario? I mean, every shift you take or the when you send your folks out on shifts, is it is that hypervigilance still there? Or how do you think? I, I would say that there's definitely um, a day-to-day highlight on preparedness. The, the bombings definitely taught us a lesson. You never know. You know, that's something nobody in a million years ever would have guessed. Um, and it happened. So there's always in the back of your mind that that need to be prepared. Um, I would say the hypervigilance has kind of calmed a little bit and it resurfaced with the 10 year anniversary, unfortunately. Um, And I'd say having made it through um, this, the most recent um, 127th running of the marathon, there was a, a, I felt, and I think I sensed it amongst my peers, a sigh of relief that nothing happened, but there's still always in the back of your mind, you know, we have to remain vigilant. We have to stay resilient. You never know what's around the next corner or in the next call. Shu, how about for you? In the years since then, you've gone from the police department into emergency management. And so how has your thinking evolved over these 10 years? You know, it's very interesting. You know, superintendent talked about, you know, that, that hypervigilance and, you know, we planned uh, and we always plan for the worst case scenario, but there's a small piece of you that, um, as you mentioned, you don't expect it to happen, but we are blessed and very fortunate as a city uh, where we are well, well-trained and well-tested. And I think that that was a testament in terms of what we saw in the response that day across uh, public safety disciplines. But certainly as I transitioned into emergency management, um, it really forces us into this right all hazards approach to crisis planning. So it's it's forced me to think through a very different lens, not just a uh, public safety lens, but what does the impact have on everyday city operations? What's it mean for schools? Um, we know um, in the aftermath and the response to the bombing, you know, we had a state of emergency where the entire Commonwealth was locked down and then it started to concentrate around Eastern Massachusetts and, and, and Boston's core. Um, but it really forced me um, and it really keeps me in the space of really thinking through a much broader lens and a whole of community response because what we realized was that our city, our way of life, our region was impacted on multiple levels. So it certainly has broadened my lens to think beyond just the initial response, just public safety and what the impacts mean and what the response means uh, for everyday life. One of the themes that has come out in the various sessions I've been part of that have marked the 10th anniversary is that the the bombings, it was, it was a turning point in, in how we think about survivors, uh, both those directly affected by the incident, as well as the, the secondary trauma of those who were uh, family, friends, people who are not at the scene necessarily, but who watched it on television, and, and certainly the wellness of first responders. Uh, as seems to have evolved quite a bit. What have you seen uh, with regard to that in terms of how we think differently about the survivor community and how we interact with them? Um, Chu, what have you seen? Uh, there is, There can be no doubt that public safety, and again, in particular, policing has evolved to recognize officer wellness um, and general um, health and mental stability as a priority. Uh, We still have a lot of work to do, uh, but any modern contemporary police leader is thinking through that space of how do we ensure that we're meeting the moment and sustaining the support that's needed for our first responders as they deal with this work day in and day out. And the unfortunate reality, Eric, is, is that 
while we responded in the moment, we still had an entire city to run, right? We're a metro, metro, uh, you know, metropolitan area. We're a major city. We still had the reality of 911 calls and the, uh, you know, dealing with and addressing the everyday crisis-based uh, instances and, and, and issues that come up with running a major city uh, with, with a high dense uh, population base. So, We've definitely evolved in that space. It is a priority. I will a dual hat in working with housing police now um, in Boston. And it is, it, you know, at the highest level in our thinking is around officer wellness. And most importantly, the sustained uh, capacity to um, ensure that officers know and institutionalize it within the department and us knowing and recognizing that it's our responsibility uh, to support those in that space. Lee, how about you? Again, your your folks in EMS see a lot of difficult situations every single day. From everything in Boston, from standing up the one fund quickly and getting money out as fast as possible to, again, Iraq and Afghanistan uh, war veterans were here working with those who had suffered amputations to help uh, help them understand what their future life was going to be. And the EMS folks get called uh, into difficult situations repeatedly. How are you thinking now about uh, both the survivors of that incident, but but wellness overall and in, in terms of your folks? Uh, well, we've always been um, fortunate, at least in, in my career here at Boston EMS, um, to have a peer support program that is beautifully run. It, it's very discreet. It is very supportive of, you know, whether it's a personal struggle, mental health struggles, um, divorce, substance, you name it. Big incidents like the bombing um, had a lasting effect on our members. So we were very concerned. So peer support really beefed up their regular op operations. They offered additional support, um, additional group discussions, just so people could vent and share and cry it out, hug it out, whatever they needed to do. Um, so that was great just to see that program that, that had been established previously really go to work. And it also highlighted, you know, it's okay to not be okay and feel free to raise your hand. But it also, we, we really dove into checking on each other. Um, I, I observed peers who were there, you know, if you hear car backfire, they, they were skittish, you know, it was a lot of post-traumatic stress. And I'm thankful for the one fund and the, the veterans programs that jumped in to support not only us, but also the victims. Um, I know a few days after the bombings, I worked dispatch and we were getting, you know, weeks later, we were getting calls from victims who were now, you know, septic from their injuries, um, having to return to the hospital, you know, needing assistance up and downstairs to get to and from their appointments. And it was then that I realized this isn't just, you know, one call, one patient, move on to the next. This, this is their life. This, their life has been completely altered. Um, which then, you know, alters our response. We have to, you know, additional services, so on and so forth. So just, I, I would say mental health, not only just of our team, but also of the general public. I think everybody felt it. Yeah, I think, I think it really has added layers of complexity to the understanding of what goes on in the aftermath of a major incident and what you have to be ready for in terms of taking care of people. It's not just the physical industry, injuries. It is indeed that the mental state and mental capacity, and it's become uh, ever more apparent, certainly through COVID, um, but the bombings, I think, were a real revelation in that regard because you don't just, you aren't the same after that day 
anyone who was there or who saw it or even who saw it on television. So, which brings me to a, another aspect of work today. And as you're leading your respective agencies, there have been many, many more violent incidents since 2003. They've become uncomfortably common. Uh, it does seem unusual when you don't turn on the news in the evening and see at least one violent incident somewhere in the country. So as much as traditionally everybody, I'm sure you mentioned this earlier, thinks about, you know, this could happen, but you really don't expect it to happen. Now it seems like it's much more likely to happen, or at least that's the way it feels from, from uh, again, following the news. How do you prepare and how do you prepare your people to leading these increasingly unpredictable and potentially deadly circumstances? Are you seeing, and, and secondarily, are you seeing generational issues in recruiting and retention with regard to the willingness to go out and, be, and work in these situations? Lee? I would say a lesson learned from the bombings. Um, each vehicle was equipped with the X amount of uh, rubber tourniquet, scissors, and things to um, secure a tourniquet. Um, so we walked away with a lesson and we need to be individually prepared. So since the bombings, um, we've all been issued individual um, tourniquets, which since then, I believe fire and police have also been issued um, the tourniquets. So we've had incidents where our own members um, had incidents and the police officers jumped in, used their tourniquet to save a member's life. Um, so that was just learning opportunity. If we hadn't experienced this and learned and grown from that situation, we might've been at a loss of that member. Um, even though I'm in an office capacity now, I still put my tourniquet in my right pocket every single day. Um, so, so that's kind of like my battle armor going out into the world. As I come into work, I see the, the memorials, the flowers, the, the teddy bears, the candles along my way. And I'm always thinking like, wow, that's somebody who's no longer with us for one reason or another. And how does that affect not only the family, but the kids, you know, a lot of times I see these memorials at bus stops and it's like, you'll see a group of six or seven kids and there's a memorial, but it's a bus stop. And I'm in my mind, I'm like, somebody responded there and something happened and something unfortunate has happened. But I also think like, do those kids realize like what's around them and how bad is it? Or are we just numb? Um, so I just, I would say, you know, I'm prepared. I have my battle armor but also the, the mental health portion is what, what are our next steps and what does the future look like? Is this going to be the norm? Um, and as we all know, every time you turn on the television, there's, um, there's always a school shooting or this or that or some sort of trauma. Um, and as a result of that, our department has been, uh, we've been receiving increasing requests for stop the bleed training. Um, which I, and actually as recently as a month ago, we did a huge rollout um, with the Boston Public Schools, schools um, issuing them um, stop the bleed kits for just that preparedness aspect. But I never in a million years would have thought that's where we need to be and that's where we're going. Shu, how about for you? And certainly, you, you know, you come out of a law enforcement back, public safety background, so you're highly attuned to this, but how does it affect the world of emergency management here in Boston? Eric, it's a great question. Um, and the superintendent and I was having some somewhat related conversations um, uh, prior to prior to starting the session this morning. But at the heart of it is training. 
Um, right, we have to train um, and we have to be willing, um, as I spoken um, and mentioned earlier, you know, willing to accept responsibility and recognize that reality. Um, there's a couple of other pieces that go along with that, um, which are concerning. And, and I think we have all uh, talked about it and or recognized it in some way, shape or fa- uh, fashion is the concern around complacency. Um, we see it so often that it becomes part of the norm or expected. Um, and the challenge with that is, is you know, when when we do that, um, some some of the unintended consequences are that it's normalized or it's accepted, right? Um, but we have to remain vigilant in that space and knowing that um, people are impacted uh, by these uh, experiences. Generationally, uh, there is no doubt uh, that this generation of professionals coming into these respective disciplines, our work has made much more difficult because I do they I do believe they come into the professions and the opportunities with very different perspectives uh, than prior generations. So it's forced us to have very different conversations with them. And we were talking about some of the pivots that we've made, not just with, um, you know, in public safety as a whole, but certainly not just with policing, but uh, on the emergency management side um, is the willingness to have very open and candid information informational conversations on the front end of the interview process to be to be very clear and candid with what the experiences are what you may or may not be exposed to and really pro- provide them with some foundational information to make an informed decision as to whether this is the long-term sustaining right career choice for them so we're really we're really trying to uh, think through it through multiple lenses um, on the emergency management side Eric I will say, that when I first got involved, um, uh, you know, with this discipline and on this side, we were talking about mass casualty events. Um, with uh, unfortunately, we were coming off of Sandy Sandy Hook and some of those unfortunate instances where there were large volumes of victims. But when we look at the federal definition of these mass shooter events, right, it's a much smaller subset. One that many cities and towns, unfortunately. Um, met the benchmark uh, and meet the benchmark every day with some of these mass shootings. And I can recall interjecting into the conversation and asking my colleagues, what's our responsibility in this space? How are we thinking about supporting our public safety partners and communities through these types of events? And uh, unfortunately, because of the continued frequency of them over the years, it's now contemporary and it out and now is part of our everyday thinking about how do we fit into the response uh, protocol and model um, so that we can ensure that the wraparound services and the service delivery that we're given to our communities really is the type of not just initial response, but really wraparound services and long-term sustaining services so that we as a community and those victims that are directly impacted and secondarily impacted have the ability to uh, rebound um, and uh, fully recover from the incident and become fully functioning again. So we certainly are thinking about it every day, um, you know, in the work that we do and our planning. Wow. It's a lot to think about. It's a lot to keep on your plate and it's a lot of responsibility. So thank you both for the the work that you continue to do. Um, Now I'm going to give you my final question, which I give to every guest on the show, because you do work in difficult jobs and see a lot of difficult situations. What gives you hope? Shoot. Thank you. Um, you know, what gives me hope? Um, and I don't want it to sound corny. I don't want it to sound um, like a cliche, but there is a functional example um, that I that I hope um, and um, truly do believe that, um, you know, your sense is picked up on. But when the superintendent was presenting out um, in the background, we heard a siren. 
And I have always processed um, throughout my career, every time that I hear a siren, whether it's uh, EMS, police, or fire, I know that someone is in need. And in some of those instances, it can be as minor as a young person fell and, you know, unfortunately broke a limb, but is fully going to recover uh, that needs uh, additional support. Or in a worst case scenario, uh, there's been a loss of life or a loss of life or a serious traumatic event. So for me, um, I am continually um, motivated, um, even through some of the dark and grayest days, and knowing that the work that we do services someone. And in many instances, I had to accept long ago um, that in some of those instances, I may not see, experience, or know the person that I've impacted, but I fundamentally, with a morally centered approach, know that my service is benefiting someone. And I use that to motivate not just myself, but to use that as a creed and a benchmark for trying to lead, mentor, and foster the next generation of service providers and leaders. Thank you. Lee, the last word goes to you. What gives you hope? So piggyback on Chief Benford's comments. So to hear the sirens, I, I think I've become somewhat numb just because of where my office is. Um, so it's kind of interesting that you heard I probably four or five went by and I just don't hear it anymore. But when I see it, it is um, it's it's the same impact as, you know, like I said, seeing that candle or seeing that that makeshift memorial. Um, what gives me hope is knowing that the, the crews that are responding are doing their best. They're truly, truly, truly from the heart. Um, people that are in this first responder world, it's a calling. I know it sounds corny, but it truly is a calling. And I just want to highlight, you know, for people to get up every day and put on whatever their uniform might be to go out there and provide a service to the city, to offer safety, to provide help, um, that's a calling. But um, over the sirens, what, what truly gives me hope is um, when, I, when I see young parents, when I see them pushing strollers, when I go by a playground, and I, I tend to hear the laughter of children over the sirens. So that, I think, gives me hope, not only for uh, what we do in our day-to-day -day lives, but also what we do for work, um, the service that we provide to this city. And also just the future as a whole, that just hearing that laughter and knowing they're next, that gives me true hope and true joy. My guests for this episode have been Shumaine Benford, Chief of Emergency Management for the City of Boston, and Lee Alexander, Superintendent, Training and Career Development for Boston EMS. Please follow their lead and learn from every incident in which you're involved. This is how we grow and stay resilient in turbulent times. You know, one of the most com common complaints I hear in the field is that the lessons gleaned in hot washes and after-action reviews are too often observed but not applied. That is a disservice to the people who do the work today, the people who will follow in their footsteps tomorrow, and the communities they serve. Experience is a resource you've already paid for. We owe it to each other to pay the knowledge forward. Until next time, remember, you're it. Be ready to lead when it matters most. This has been another episode of Leader ReadyCast from the National Preparedness Leadership Initiative. Subscribe to Leader ReadyCast wherever you get your favorite podcasts and find out more about us at npli.sph.harvard.edu. Follow us on Twitter at HarvardNPLI. 
Thanks for listening and be ready to lead.